Pray with me, and then we'll begin. Father God, we do thank you for this moment to just to be here and worship you. Yes. And Lord, we thank you that uh, each and every week that we come together to just hear from you. No, no one's here to hear from me. My opinions don't matter. But we're here to hear from your word. And Lord, I pray that we're a people that doesn't lower the authority of the word and then we just try to sneak in under its lowest uh, bar. But Lord, that we hold your word high knowing that it's a gift from you. It's what you want us to know about you and about these things. So Lord, help us to, to live faithfully to it. Lord, I also pray that that we would be faithful to think carefully about your word and the implications of what these passages mean for us. Lord, I pray that uh, as we delve into this series on your relationship with women, I pray, Lord, that we as men in the church would just have a renewed vision for how to treat the women in our lives. Lord, I pray that the ladies in this church and listening to this message right now, that they would you know, participate in, in making this world a more just place as it relates to women, but that ultimately their hope would be in the Son of Man. Yeah. That their hope would be in the way that some man, maybe even well-meaning, views something or maybe not well-meaning, but that they would trust you, that they would look to you on how they are to be treated and how you treat them and that they would find their identity in Christ and not on what some guy thinks of them. Lord, I pray as we look at these two sisters, I pray that we would see them and, and, and all, uh, they're good and bad and just, uh, they're just such wonderful characters in the New Testament, but that we would see that you're the hero of this story. Yeah. Finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Amen. Well, are you more left brain dominant or more right brain dominant? Are you familiar with the theories of left and right brain? And this started in the 1960s where a man who won a Nobel Prize for his research, uh, he was a, a neuropsychologist and was doing work on seizures. And he uh, found a way to help people who were having seizures if they could sever part of the brain that linked the two halves. Now that research led into all this uh, study on, okay, are there distinctions between the two halves of the brains? And if there are distinctions, then how do they relate? And, and he developed a, a theory that on the, uh, the left side of the brain is the more maybe logical uh, side, and then the right side is the more creative side. And so um, those things impact us, and that led him to develop a theory that, okay, some of us are maybe more right brain dominant and more left brain dominant. Uh, the reality is, is uh, research later has shown that actually that theory is kind of debunked. Uh, that there are maybe different functions that happen on different sides of the brain, but, it, but it's not necessarily uh, we're dominated uh, by one or the other. And sometimes we need to uh, really uh, be careful to not fall into pits as we start thinking about theories like that or even like personality theories. And, and the pit that we need to be careful of on all these studies is, is that we don't think that those things are deterministic. So, for example, you might say, well, listen, I'm more left-brain dominant, I'm more logical, and so I'm just, I'm just more blunt. I just tell it how it is. Well, okay, maybe you're more left-brain, but just dial it back a little bit. They, they give you the freedom to be rude, okay? Or you might say, well, listen, I'm more creative, and I did, so I just can't think of these you know, big, complex thoughts. Well, hey, slow down. You, know, you might have to work harder on something to get there, uh, but, but, you are, but you can understand those things. But what is true from, from this man's research is, is that we do have different personalities. 
Each of us as individuals have different traits, different characteristics that are unique to us. And what is clearly true is that we have these not only different personalities and different traits, but then they lead to different tendencies, okay? And what I want us to see today is, or ask initially, is how does Jesus view those differences? How does he view those distinctions and those traits and those characteristics uh, that are unique to us as individuals? Does he view some of them as better than others? And and specifically on how it relates to gender, are there some characteristics that psychologists and sociologists have determined, okay, these are more, are more feminine traits? Are there some of those traits that Jesus that thinks is more faithful or less faithful? And it can be the same thing for men. Does Jesus view some of these better than others? How does Jesus relate in general to women? But also, how does he view these distinct traits that we all have? Today, we're looking at how Jesus related to these two sisters, Martha and Mary, And from the outset, I want to be very clear that they are two very different people. Martha is very different than Mary. They're distinct people. And what I want us to see is that Jesus made them that way. Jesus created them differently. Jesus loves them with the same amount of love, but he also relates to them differently. He relates to them differently based upon who they are, but he views their distinctions, their differences as good. Today we're going to start in Luke 10, and we're going to uh, look at this instance where Jesus comes into the home of Martha and Mary. Then we're going to jump to John 11, and this is the account where Jesus raises their brother Lazarus from the dead. And then we're going to look at John 12, where Mary anoints Jesus' feet. Mary and Martha are also likely mentioned uh, at the, uh, the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. I think it's this Mary who is with Mary Magdalene who is sitting at the tomb uh, when Jesus dies. And so they pop up in different places. But these are the three main stories of Martha and Mary. The first thing I want you to see from Luke chapter 10 is that we're to believe that he creates us with distinct traits. He creates you with distinct traits. You're going to be good at some things, not good at other things. There's things about your personality that are going to be different than others. And he creates you with those distinct traits. But also that those distinctions are good. The ways that you're different from someone else are good. God views those things as good. Okay, Luke 10, starting in verse 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. In this opening story, I think it highlights the distinctions between Martha and Mary. Martha is a thinker, Martha is a doer, and Mary is a feeler. I think those are the attributes and the traits that we're going to see in these three stories. First off, they live in a town called Bethany, which is just right outside of of Jerusalem. And uh, they either live with or, or, they, or, or they just have a brother in the same town named Lazarus. We're going to see that uh, Jesus raises him from the dead in the next story. Uh, but this is a family that Jesus really loves, and they love Jesus, and they have this great relationship with him. But looking at the two sisters, there's this sense that Martha is somehow the leader of the two sisters, and maybe the entire household, including Lazarus. Notice that she's listed first. 
Martha is always listed before Mary. And also notice that the house that they're meeting is, is described as her house. So she's either earned her own money and purchased this house, or she's inherited this house. But in some way, this is her house. Now, both of these ladies love Jesus. Both of these ladies follow Jesus, and they generously support his ministry. And, and, um, and if you've ever hosted a large group of people, you understand that this is a big job to host all these disciples and all these people. And there's probably what's going on here, too, is that Martha is footing the bill. She's not only serving, but she likely has paid for all of this food that, that they're uh, enjoying. We're going to see later that Martha is a thinker. But in Luke 10, I think she's uh, seen to be a doer. She gets things done. I, I envision Martha as having really great leadership gifts. Now, again, she's in, she, her house is a large house. Okay, And so she uh, possibly has people working with her. But, but what we do know is she's managing this house really well. She's pulling off a really big party where she's feeding a lot of people. She's the type of person that gets things done. Martha's probably uh, what we would call a task-oriented person. She probably has lists. She knows how to get things done. She's a great hostess, okay? She's organized. She's diligent. She's, if you stick to the right brain, left brain stuff, she's logical. Uh, she uh, takes her generosity from something more than words or platitudes, and she puts it to action, like she's generously serving the Lord. She has this get her done mentality and she is enabling because of her service. She's enabling this environment where all these people can hear the word of Jesus. Uh, Redeemer, I think, is a church plant. I think we're still a church plant. At least that's my mentality. But as a church plant, we've only been in a building about a year, so we don't even really know how to function in a building yet. But all of our groups are like outside the church, okay? We've started this equip class but really all of our groups are meeting in homes. Now, in the equip class, it is kind of more of a traditional like teaching and, and a lecture, and, and there's some interaction and questions. But at our small groups, it's way more of a discussion. But, but really the secret uh, to our small groups are, are the host. Okay, these are people in our church, families in our church, that open up their homes to you for you to come in and meet. Now, it's a chore to do this. Like a, a family that commits to be a host, like they're really committing to something. Like they typically have to get off work early in order to host. You know, the, the kids have to clean all their rooms before they get there. Like there's a lot of work to, to get ready to host all these people. But what they're allowing to happen is they're allowing the word of God then to go forth and transform lives. Amen. And so it's a major sacrifice to what, what Martha is doing and what our hosts are doing. I mean, what they're doing is a very virtuous thing. It's something that we ought to esteem and respect and appreciate. Well, I, I, the more I study Martha, the more I appreciate her, the more I really respect her. However, uh, uh, the way she was doing it is what matters. This, is, this was the problem. It wasn't that she was serving, that's to be esteemed, but it was how she was serving. You see, what she was doing is she was taking her eyes off Jesus. Now, if you compare it to Mary, look back again at Mary. Mary is maybe the feeler, right? Now, notice her posture. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, learning from him. I mean, this is the posture of a disciple, right? Like This is the ideal posture of a disciple, which means she is taking what he is teaching. And this isn't some sort of just theoretical game where she's trying to figure out, you know, these, these uh, speculative truths. She's taking uh, what he's giving and then she's applying it to her life so that she can more faithfully follow her. And in that, she is worshiping him. Jesus calls this the good portion. Like, this is the good stuff, okay? 
But Mary, uh, and so she, she's demonstrating this kind of silent example of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. But for Martha, when Martha comes along, again, it's not that she's serving, but it's how she's serving. There's something in Martha's heart that begins to bubble up here. She starts comparing. She starts taking her eyes off the focus of Christ and starts putting it on her sister, who's not doing what she thinks she ought to do. And this gets this rebuke from Jesus. Now, it is a rebuke, but I want to be clear, this is a tender rebuke. Martha, Martha. Like, like he loves Martha. He knows that she has good intentions on what she's doing. Like, like he understands that this comes from a good place. But notice that he says is that she's become distracted. She's taken her eye off the ball, the thing that is the most important, which is, which is just being in his presence. Now, if you're like Martha or, or like me when this happens, what does that lead to? It leads to where it's leading with Martha. She, she's maybe becoming fearful, but she's certainly becoming angry. Like, this is like a daily thing for me. Like when I start comparing people, or I start seeing what people are not doing, what they should be doing, I mean, that's just the root of it, all sorts of anger, right? But, but if we can keep this, the, this perspective on the good portion of, of what Jesus is and this, this, uh, this eternal perspective, uh, th- then, then we can see all of those things through the lens of Christ. And, and what is, how does Christ see this scene? He looks at Mary and says, okay, listen, service to Jesus is good, but worship of Jesus is better. You see, he, he looks at this situation and says, listen, doing for Jesus is good, but being with Jesus is better. You see, dwelling with Christ, that's the good portion. That's the main thing. Is it good to serve the Lord? Yes, it is. But how you serve the Lord really matters. And it is that service to the Lord, is that drawing you closer to Christ? That's the question. He says that that's the good portion. He's the well that never runs dry. He's this bread of life. And just being with him, sitting at his feet, that's where joy comes from. Finally, I do want you to see that the two sisters are different in order to make the point that the Bible does not have one cookie-cutter mold for how to be a faithful woman. You can be a faithful woman and bring different gifts and different traits and different personalities to the table. Believe that He creates us with distinct traits and believe that those distinctions are good. So, for example, if you're a doer, if you're task-oriented, if you're kind of a get-or-done type, then you probably identify with Martha, right? But hear that Jesus made Martha and Jesus made you with those traits. And he thinks that those traits are good and use those traits to dwell closer to him. Now, on the flip, maybe you're a feeler. Maybe you're less task-focused, but you're more people-focused. Maybe you're more of a creative type. And you might identify with Mary. Well, it's the same admonition. Hear that Jesus made Mary and he made you. He made you the way you are. And those things are good. That those distinct traits that mark you that are maybe different from somebody else, like those are, those are good things. He, he's created you that way. And use those traits like Mary did to draw closer to him. Ladies, there's clear differences between men and women. Like you have to go get a master's degree to think otherwise. It's obvious. And some of those, some of those differences, you know, they play out on, on how we operate. Now, so many of those differences, clearly they're socially constructed and they really have nothing to do with the Bible. But, but so many of those, but there are distinctions that the Bible does make between uh, the role of women and, and men in the home and in the church. It, it doesn't spill out into other areas. It doesn't necessarily spill out to the business world or, or, to, uh, or to politics or anything like that. I mean, let's, 
Let's be honest, the greatest rulers of England have been women, okay, <laughs> right? From the queens, and I, one of my favorite things is watching Margaret Thatcher make fun of people in Parliament. Those are, those are great videos to watch. <laughs> but there are differences, and some of those subtle differences lead to different callings. But uh, like Martha and Mary, individual women have distinct traits, and those distinctions should be celebrated, not condemned. Amen. Again, there's no cookie-cutter mold for how to be a faithful woman. It's good if God created you as more outgoing. It's good if God created you as more introverted. It's good if God created you with a teaching or a leadership gift. It's good if God created you as a great hostess. It's good if God has created you to feel deeply. No matter how He's created you, He dwells with you. And, and you're to find your greatest joy in Him, in His presence. So no matter if He how he has created you, you're to believe that Jesus is with you in that and that he's for you in that. And he can use all of those distinctions and all of those traits for his glory. Okay, let's look at the second story in John chapter 11. What I want you to see from John chapter 11 is that we're to, you're to let your theological thoughts and your heartfelt emotions draw you closer to Christ. If you have deep, profound theological thoughts, and if you have deep, profound, heartfelt, emotional feelings, let all of that lead you closer to Christ or further away. As you're turning, let me set up this story. John 11 is such a glorious passage, and and it's this passage that tells the account of Martha and Mary's brother Lazarus dying, and then Jesus goes and raises him from the dead. Now, as the narrative goes, a group comes and tells them that Lazarus is very sick. And the assumption is, hey, Jesus, go help him out. But Jesus doesn't do that. It says in verse 40 that everything that he's going to do, everything that's going to happen is going to bring glory to God. So he waits. And while he's waiting, Lazarus dies. And once they hear word of that, then he goes to him. As Jesus is approaching Bethany, Word gets out that Jesus is coming. And so Martha quickly gets up and goes straight to Jesus. Now, her words here in this interaction, it displays profound and remarkable faithfulness. Look at what Martha says in verse 21 and 22. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Friends, that's called big league faith. Okay? This is... She's not rebuking Jesus. This is a testimony of trust is what John MacArthur says about that. And that's a great way to describe it. She's testifying to her trust in the Lord. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But you know what? He's dead. But you are, you are the almighty God. And you could even raise him from the dead. Amen. Look how Jesus responds then in verse 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to him, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, hey, there's, a, there's some books we can write about that passage, right? There's really deep, profound things that Jesus is sharing there. But the focus is on Christ and what he has said here. But for our purposes, I want to focus on Martha here for a second. She's likely referencing a passage in Psalm 118 about the blessing of the Messiah coming. And when he comes into the world, he's going to make all things right and whole. 
The, the, the point is here in this exchange with Martha is she goes deep. Like she has a, she demonstrates a very deep and profound theological understanding upon who Jesus is. And, and if you're tracking the timeline here of the New Testament, uh, Martha, um, maybe the best way to say it is she is outpacing the 12 men who are following Christ in her understanding of who Jesus is and what he's here to do, Okay. The, the, the point here is she demonstrates not only remarkable faith, but very profound theological insight, okay? What I want to demonstrate here is that Martha was a profound thinker, okay? She was clearly, I think, a great leader and a great doer, but she's also a very profound thinker. I, I think it's fair to say uh, that Martha most likely had the gift of teaching, okay? She she could get things done. I think she was a great leader. I also think she could understand really profound theology. She's making connections that not everybody around Jesus is making. She understands Christ in these very profound ways. I, I think she certainly has a gift of understanding these things, and I think she probably has the gift of teaching. Now, you might say, okay, well, what's, what's the big deal about highlighting that Martha has the gift of teaching? Well, the problem is, is is, uh, okay, what does that mean for women in the church? Some people think that women don't have the gift of teaching. I don't think that that's true, but where, where people get that is a passage in 1 Timothy 2. Let me read 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Our, our First Timothy two. This passage is an example of someone like uh, like Martha, and, and uh, as it relates to someone like Martha, it requires us to do some careful thinking on what's going on here. If Martha indeed has a gift of teaching, what, how does that how does that sync with a passage like First Timothy two? What does it mean for women to to have the gift of teaching? Can women have the gift of teaching? I think they clearly, they clearly can, and I don't think uh, that passage from 1 Timothy 2 is saying anything about women possessing the gift of teaching. But I do think it talks about, okay, how that gift is displayed based upon if you're a woman or if you're a man looks differently within the church. Specifically, what I think it means here is that men, according to, uh, according to 1 Timothy 2, as well as the different passages on the requirements of the elder, that form of teaching... Whatever that means, that's restricted to elders, which is restricted to men. Okay, well, what kind of teaching are we talking about here? Well, certainly, I know for a fact, women in our church have the gift of teaching. Amen. There's women in this room that I'm looking at right now that clearly have the gift of teaching and are using that gift in great ways. There's women in this church that also have great gifts of leadership. Like, like we have ladies in our church who are going to seminary, who are planning to go uh, to seminary. So we have some real profound thinkers and teachers in our church who are women. Okay, but how does that, again, sync with 1 Timothy 2 that talks about women not teaching? What, how, what does that mean for the passages about elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 about elders are to be the ones who are teaching? Again, we need to think carefully here. What I think this means is, is that within the context of the church, when we're speaking with uh, the spiritual authority of the church, th then that teacher ought to be a male. Now, in our context, you know, we, I kind of have a wobbly pulpit here this morning, but this Sunday morning teaching moment, we view this as not just a lecture on the Bible. We view this as a moment where we're trying to hold up the Bible, look at our lives, and apply the Bible to it. 
So there's a level of spiritual authority that we're viewing about this moment. We also view this moment as when really the, the doctrine and thus the vision of the church is going forth. So we view this moment as uh, that Sunday morning teaching moment as restricted to men. So if, if I'm ever out of town or somewhere else and there's somebody else preaching, it will be a male up here. Now, what I'm about to say on other categories, we don't have any sort of formal statement on this, but let me just kind of tell you what I do with some of this. Again, the general rule, I think, from 1 Timothy 2 is that women should not teach men in an authoritative or a spiritual sense within the context of the church, okay? Well, you, know, you quickly get into practical things, right? Like, who's teaching down at RSM with our students? Well, here's what I do with this. If you're a middle schooler, I view you as a boy. Be a boy, be a monkey, do whatever you want. Once you get into high school, you are a young man, according to Pastor Micah. Now, I don't have a good Bible verse for this, but, but I think what that means for us is that when there are young men in that high, who are high school young men, we think that men ought to be teaching them. Now, just for practical reasons, we think then that our student pastor who's going to be teaching young men that our student pastor ought to be a man, okay? This also says something to our small groups. Well, how do our small groups function? Should ladies be teaching in the small group? Well, that's required us to back up and say, okay, well, what are we even doing in our small group? What's the vision for small groups? How are we carrying that out? Again, it's helpful to distinguish our small groups with the equip class. The equip class is teaching, okay? You got somebody up there, you know, they're giving a, a lecture. But in the small groups, it's something different. We've instructed our small group leaders, listen, this is more, you need to come with the passage you're talking about, the chapter you're reading, you need to have some key points, but really the design is to foster a discussion. The goal of our small groups is sanctifying friendships. We want friendships that point you to Jesus. And so what we want in that environment is a lot of discussion. Ladies, let me say it this way. If you are quiet in the small groups, then our church is not going to be healthy. We want ladies to talk in our small groups. You have something to add to that conversation. We need you to add to that conversation. We need you to be engaged in small groups. We need you to help the men in the small groups. Uh, our small groups are, are not a time of, of lectures. They're a time of discussion. And, and we want uh, everybody discussing. We want ladies to be speaking out and engaged in those moments. Does that make sense? Some of these are open-handed uh, issues. I have a good friend that we were teaching and, and training a group of church planters this week. Brothers, very like-minded, great church in the area. We got to that point, and the young guy said, hey, what do y'all do? His church does something different than our church. Okay, so th these are open-handed issues. This is just kind of how we're functioning. That In our small groups, what we say is we have small group leaders and small group co-leaders in the plural, small group hosts in the plural. And what that plays out for us is it's a man and a woman who are leading the group. And, and the reason, uh, their main task is to shepherd you, not necessarily teach lectures. But then when we get to that time of discussion, we think it's best for a man to lead that discussion. I know some of this is splitting hairs, and, uh, but we're trying to think carefully on these issues. We might change on these issues, but that's kind of how we uh, have been trying to lead the church on some of those issues. Okay. I recognize using uh, Martha in, in John 11 uh, to step into the issue of women teaching. This, this likely stirs up a gajillion questions for you. If you have a gajillion questions on some of these things, I want to encourage you uh, to ask those questions. L let's have a discussion about this. We don't have all of these issues figured out. We don't want to be a, a stereotype over here. 
We don't want to be a stereotype over here. We recognize there's nuance in all of these things. And so we want to hear your opinion. People can have honest differences of opinions on some of these things, on what does it mean for men and women to relate in the church and how the teaching function happens in the church. However, I do want us to clearly see that Martha in John 11 uh, is that God creates women with thinking traits and teaching traits. This is a very wise woman. This is a woman that I think has a thinking gift and a teaching gift. And now let's turn to sweet Mary. I love Mary in this moment. As you keep going down in, in John 11, she also has a similar testimony of trust. Starting in verse 33, uh, she hears that Jesus is there, and then Mary pops up and goes to Jesus. In verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And in the shortest Bible verse in the Bible, verse 33, Jesus, or 35, Jesus wept. Sweet, tender Mary feels deeply. We saw that in the previous account. We see it here. We're going to see it in the next account. And I want you to see that Jesus steps into her hurt with her. He feels deep compassion for her. He, he, is, he is also tender. Jesus is tender with her. He weeps with her. And I think there might be an implication here that he's really responding to her weeping, and that's why he weeps. He's sad about Lazarus, but he's stepping into that with her. You see, we have some wonderfully tender-hearted women in our church, and tenderness is not a bad trait. Amen. Tenderness is a good trait. If you identify with Mary here, listen, you're, this is a trait that is very Jesus-like. Jesus is also tender and compassionate. And if you're that way, he steps into that with you. Know that Jesus thinks that's a good trait in you. Amen. Now hear me, if you're a thinker like Martha, use those traits to draw closer to him. If God's given you the gift of, of being able to think these profound theological thoughts and figure out the nuance of these different ideas, don't use it to deconstruct your faith and, and, and walk further away from him. Use those gifts to draw closer to him like Martha did. And hear me, if you're like Mary, if you have these really just profound, tender-hearted emotions and feelings, use those things as a gift from the Lord to draw closer to Him. You're not going to find anything uh, more beautiful and satisfying to your soul than Christ Himself. Let those theological thoughts and let those heartfelt emotions lead you closer to Jesus. Well, let's keep reading one more account of Mary. Skip on down to the next chapter, the first eight verses of John 12. And what I want you to see is that we are to feel the freedom to express your joy. Feel the freedom to express your joy. John 1 sa 12, 1 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was uh, one of those who was reclining at the table with him. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and then wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And in verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Most likely this is the same account that's mentioned in Matthew 26 as well as Mark 14. I think the account of in Luke 7, I think that's actually a separate account of, some, of another woman anointing Jesus' feet. But, but I think what's going on here is that uh, we're to see the main thrust of this passage is Jesus actually re, uh, rebuking Judas. It, it gives us a picture into Judas's heart. But, but the bigger picture is this, and for our purpose today, is this focus on Mary. What she's doing here is this story demonstrates heartfelt devotion to Christ. And listen, it's an extravagant devotion to Christ, right? Like even, I mean, if you can picture it, if you can, you know, picture this in your uh, imagination at all, this is a wild thing to happen. Like, like this is a very extravagant display of her affections for the Lord. This is probably a year's worth of wages of what this was cost. This is probably three times what, G- what Judas betrayed Jesus for. This is a lot of money. There's a lot of smell going on here. There's this crazy uh, scene in many ways of, this, uh, of Mary washing his feet with this. And what we've seen is that she is tender. She is heartfelt. She feels deeply and she makes this extravagant display of her love for Christ. This is a beautiful and powerful moment. Amen. Let me say we're in the, uh, this uh, search process for our, our next worship leader. We're so thankful for Mark serving as our, our interim. And in this process, it has uh, uh, led to a discussion on, okay, as a church, how expressive are we in worship? Now, we, we've landed on... Uh, as we talk about worship, is we have a vision that we want to be heartfelt as well as theologically driven. Um, and so we want words that really matter. We want things done up here well, but we want to worship God in, in, in a very free way. Now, I don't know that we necessarily have a problem with worshiping God expressively, but if we do have a problem of not being expressive, and I've said this to the team, um, uh, I'm, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> and, and I think if I was more expressive as a worshiper, I think it would, it would help y'all uh, feel the freedom to be more expressive. Um, a number of years ago, uh, Kristen was nice to buy me a birthday present of tickets to go see my favorite band. Um, and all that Bono got out of me was this a couple of times, okay? So I'm just stiff. It's just who I am, okay? You know, that's, Jesus gets more than Bono from me, but that's about it. I say that to say, if you're a feeler like Mary, and, and if I want you to know that this is a church where we want you to sing out. Amen. If you feel led to raise your hands, we want you to raise your hand. We want you to worship Jesus. And, and if you're a feeler like Mary, I want you to feel the freedom to do that here. And don't let the stiff, socially awkward pastor get in your way, okay? <laughs> it's just what it is here. If you have a heart like Mary's, know that Jesus meets you there and he's blessed by our heart and feel the freedom to express your joy. When I was a child, um, I saw a lady in our church apologize to the pastor's wife for something that she said to her. It was during a church business meeting and it, was, it got awkward really quick and so I remember it. Um, but what happened was is this lady had gone up to the pastor's wife, and here's the gist of what she said. She said that she thought she was a good pastor's wife because she had a gentle and quiet spirit and didn't say much. 
Now, she meant that as a compliment. But when she walked away from that, she, she regretted saying it. And her thought was, is she felt like that she took this pastor's wife's voice away, that she froze her, that, that she made her feel like that she didn't have the freedom to say things in the church. She needed to be quiet, and she couldn't talk in the church. And as the more this lady reflected upon it, she, she regretted saying it, and she wanted to apologize. And she, I think in a very brave and a thoughtful, certainly in a powerful, and I think a very gracious way, apologized to the pastor's wife for this. She did it at a church business meeting in front of everybody, and that's why I remember it. Um, I, and, and when we got in the car after that meeting, I remember asking my mom and dad, what in the world? I, don't, I, don't, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand what was going on. And I remember them explaining that, hey, sometimes... Uh, in a church, people can have this vision of what a woman is supposed to be and that women are supposed to fit in that box, but we don't always fit in that box. And so sometimes we can take a verse like that and we can uh, push it onto somebody in a way that it was not meant to be applied to them for. And, and so, you know, sometimes uh, women can feel like they don't fit in this faithful box that, some, that this particular verse says. And so it, it was such a helpful moment for me to, to understand uh, at an early age, that how the church can make some women feel when they don't fit in certain boxes. Women are like men in that there's not a cookie-cutter mold for what faithfulness looks like. Martha and Mary were both very different, and Jesus made them that way, and Jesus liked them that way. Ladies, even though you might, uh, you might be different from another lady in our church, do you believe that Jesus is for you? Now, maybe your gifts or maybe your traits are different than somebody else, but do you believe that Jesus will use you? If he was for Martha, then he's for you. If he could use Mary, then he can use you. And in recognizing your distinctions, you're to believe that Jesus is for you. Even though your gifts might be different from someone else, believe that Jesus can use you. I'll close with this. Uh, last year, I was, um, I was at a restaurant, and I noticed at, a, at another table an author that I really appreciated. I'd read a number of this author's books. and In fact, the author had written a very helpful commentary that I had used for a, a sermon series here at Redeemer. I, I always feel awkward in moments like that, but I decided I wanted to approach the author even though we had never met. I led with apologizing for interrupting their dinner, but then I proceeded to thank this writer for the commentary. I explained that I was a pastor and that I had done an expository sermon series through that particular book of the Bible. And, and I just explained how, how much the commentary meant to me, that it was really helpful. I published a few things. I know how hard it is to write a book. And I just thank the writer for writing this book that, that I really appreciated. Jen Wilkin then said, you know, thank you so much for thanking me. Also, this might sound silly, but most men that approach me about my books they usually rave about how much my books have meant to their wives. Rarely does a man tell me how much my books have meant to them. I want, I want you to know how much it means to me that you as a man and as a pastor have used my books. Thank you for reading my books. Jen Wilkin is one of the best Christian writers today. Our, our women's ministry is currently using one of her studies. Her first Peter material is really strong. And when we talk through 1 Peter here, I used her materials. Ladies, no matter if your traits are more like Martha or they're more like Mary, know that Jesus is for you. What I mean is, is that no matter if you have a lot of words to say or if you're terrified to talk or if you're more of a thinker or if you're more of a feeler 
or if you're more of a big picture leader, or if you're more of a behind the scenes, get her done type, or if you're a teacher, or if you have trouble finishing a book, or if you love preschoolers and eighth graders, or if you're like the rest of us, (laughs) know that Jesus will use you no matter what traits you have. Jesus is for you and Jesus uses you. God has created you with the traits you possess. And there is not one cookie cutter way for what it looks like to be a faithful man. And in the same way, there's not one cookie cutter way for what it looks like to be a faithful woman. Those traits that God has given you are good. If you're a doer, dwell with him with your task when you're doing those tasks. If you're more of a feeler, then find your greatest joy in him. For all of us, the story of Martha and Mary highlight that Jesus created us differently, and he did it for a reason. Your distinctions are part of his vision for you. He likes those. Jesus is for you, even if you're different than others. Jesus is, and Jesus can use you. So brothers and sisters, believe that Jesus is for you, and believe that Jesus can use you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this story of these two sisters. I thank you for their faithfulness and I thank you for their distinctions and how those things were played out in their lives and how uh, they can be an example to us. But really the good news, Lord, is that of how you love us in our differences. Lord, I pray that the women of our church would feel the freedom uh, to be who you have called them to be. I pray that they would embrace their traits and their personalities and their giftedness and that they would use those for your glory. I also pray that we would be a church that appreciates the ladies in our church, ladies who have real gifts of teaching, ladies who have real leadership gifts. And I pray, Lord, that we would celebrate that. Lord, thank you uh, for the ladies that you have brought to this church. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.